Welcome to the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Stick around for interviews, analysis, fan stories, and our love affair with Phoenix Rising. And now to kick things off is your host, Niall McCarthy. Welcome, Phoenix Rising family, to the 10th episode of this podcast. In this episode, we'll talk about the June 26th game where Phoenix Rising traveled to Heart Health Park to take on Sacramento Republic. That was our second time taking them on this season and our second time beating them in their stadium. The win didn't come easy, especially in the second half where Sacramento Republic were playing on pure adrenaline as they tried to equalize. We're joined by goalkeeper Brandon Keniston for the game review. BK, who signed for Phoenix Rising on an academy contract in 2019 and is currently attending the University of San Francisco, is home for the summer, and he spends his days as a practice player with Phoenix Rising. His insider knowledge gives a fresh and fun edge to our game breakdown. Following that, we've got an interview with USL lead analyst Devin Kerr. Devin has been a great friend to this show, coming on to talk about tactics regarding Phoenix Rising, but today, we talked to him about his career, starting as a soccer player in Germany to eventually becoming the USL's lead analyst. It's a fun interview, and you're going to like Devon a lot. As usual, we have the league standings looking at the highlights from each division, and we'll preview our next game, where we take on LA Galaxy 2. Finally, a home game. It's an exciting episode. Let's get started. Nancy Shattuck with Los Bandidos, and you are listening to the Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, on Saturday, June 26th, we had an away game against Sacramento Republic in Heart Health Park, and what a game it was. I've got two panelists with me today, Kelly and Brandon. Brandon, give us some of your overall thoughts on the game. Yeah, no, it was a great game uh, to get a win out of. Uh, I know in the past history rising against Sacramento has been a very uh, tough opponent for us and especially being away there you know uh, before this season we haven't scored uh, at their uh, arena the last few years so uh, I think it was great to get two goals and come away with a victory. It was a hard fought win we saw a lot of things going on in that game six yellows they got a red card in the 38 minute. There were three goals overall. Of course, we won 2-1. And maybe some question questionable officiating. Kelly, what were your overall all thoughts on that game? Same overall thoughts, really. You know, we had James Dunn on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about when you're playing away, it doesn't need to be pretty. You just need to pick up the points. And that's kind of how it felt. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't exactly what you would have expected being up a man for most of the game, but there were some amazing individual performances and it was certainly high energy. I mean, I got a cardio workout just watching it. So <laughs> it was a fun game. I'm excited to talk a little more deeply about it. Yeah, for sure. The f- first goal was a free kick from Solo. The second goal came in the 63rd minute, and it was our second goal of the night. Moore passed it to Solomon Asante. Solomon caught David Egbo, who's just in front of the goalie, and he beat the goalie. It was his first professional goal. Beautiful. Any thoughts on all of that, Brandon? Yeah, you know, it was um, the build-up play for it was very good off that transition uh from you know the referee maybe not calling a foul by darnell king and uh got the ball in the fast break sante Moore, you know speeding at the line found solomon sante almost right on the six and david put himself in a very good position to remain onside and be open for that pass for a easy tapping goal kelly the sacramento republic supporters were calling for offside what you make of that I certainly didn't have a better angle than anyone else had, but I think that was one of the things I found myself impressed with. You know, Egbo was caught offside a couple of times, but not much. And you can tell he's very conscious of it. Yeah, I don't think he was offside. And I think he did a great job to get himself in position. Super awesome goal. And you glossed over the first goal, understandably, but I was wondering if maybe we could go back to it because since we have a goalkeeper with us, I think it'd be cool to find out from Brandon, like, 
you know, Asante buried that goal on a free kick as a keeper. What are you thinking in those times? Are you expecting them to hit the wall? Like, I would just kind of like to hear your take on the other side of that first goal. Of course, um, you know, with free kicks are always very difficult. You know, during those moments, you set up the wall to protect that side of the goal. And the keeper always has to, you know, stay true with, uh, you know, defending their side. Because if, you know, get you get caught going to the side of the wall, then the you know, smart forward could catch you and hit it on the side that you should be covering. So um, it definitely takes a good amount of like patience and awareness uh, to be able to cover both sides effectively. I thought it was interesting of um, Sack, you know, put a guy on the ground behind the wall. And when I was watching it, I found it kind of humorous because I would, I was kind of imagining being that guy, you know, with his back to the ball and his face <laughs> to the goal on the ground and then kind of just seeing the ball go over and into the goal. Um, I think that'd be <laughs> kind of, that was humorous. Uh, definitely wouldn't be if I was the player on the ground, but sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, Solo is an incredible player. He works on, you know, those free kicks all the time after practice. And usually I'm the one in goal because I'm just a practice player and there whenever anyone else needs me. And the other guys, you know, are tired from working. So um, he's been brilliant at perfecting that. Yeah. So was that just him being that good or was there a keeper error or some combination? Yeah, I'd say that that was a pretty brilliant free kick. Um, you know, Diaz did a good job, you know, waiting for it, but then also, you know, was at full length and still like, you know, a few inches away from the ball. So I'd say that Solo, you know, two-time league MVP is <laughs> just unstoppable sometimes. Yeah. Right. Magic yeah. 20 for a reason, huh? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That was an incredible goal. The third goal was a Sacramento Republic goal. It was in the 72nd minute. Dan Casey, who's a defender, scored that goal. And he's fr from Ireland, uh, like me, and he played for my hometown in the 2019 season before coming over to the U.S. So anyway... Any thoughts on what what led up to that goal? And, you know, there was so much that led up to, you know, 10 minutes before that um, in how they, they reacted and how they started playing. But just specifically that goal. Kelly or Brandon, any, any thoughts on that? You know, set pieces, especially like corner kicks, sometimes they're just a free-for-all and sometimes they're just a mess. And that's how it feels a lot of times. And this was an example, you know, I think Schmidt was kind of facing the wrong way when that ball came in and that this is not to put blame on him. He just happened to be the person I was looking at, you know, it didn't feel like the most organized set piece that felt like a Hail Mary, they kicked it up and everyone just kind of went for it. So I, I don't want to say they got lucky, but sometimes it's just the way the ball bounces. And that's kind of how the goal felt a little bit arbitrary, just like, you know, who could get ahead on it. Brandon, do you have anything to add? You know, look, watching that goal back, there's like, five or six bodies kind of right where the ball was landing. And um, it is a mess. I know uh, Rising, you know, prides himself on, you know, always being prepared and going over film of all their opponents and set pieces, especially like day before the game and everything. And they've done a pretty good job this season being the team scoring more on set pieces than conceding. But this one was a bit uh, disorganized, you could say, and definitely just a free-for-all. It's about, you know, who wants it more, who's making the committed runs and defending their man properly. All right, guys, I'd like to talk about our formation, our lineup, and certainly that was a big change last night. So Andre Rawls was in goal. Tate Smith and Darnell King were our cornerbacks. Centerbacks, we had James Musa and Joey Farrell. In the center, we had Aiden Quinn, Kevin Lambert, and um, Arturo Rodriguez. And up front, Santi Moore, David Egbo, and Solomon Asante. We were just surprised at that lineup. Surprised that Flood yeah. wasn't on the starting 11. Surprised yeah. that Arturo Rodriguez was in for Bicaro. And then we know that, you know, up front, that Dadashov had an injury and we were wondering who was going to be in in there and it was it was Egbo and a lot of people are saying that it's about time I didn't know if when they had Egbo in if they would change the lineup sort of around him um you know if he's like really plays like a true number nine so that was just interesting and I didn't know if possibly Rodriguez in there was meant to comp to complement Egbo you know perhaps those were intentional subs together so yeah it was just it was, it was definitely surprising and interesting and cool. It's always fun. It's always a little scary when you don't have your normal starting 11, but it paid off and it was exciting. 
Sure, sure. Let's get into talking some details. Um, in the back there, you had Andre Rawls, Tate Schmidt, James Musa, Joey Farrell, and Darnell King. How did the back line do last night, in your professional opinion, Brandon? Yeah, no, they did uh, very well. James Musa and Joey Farrell have done uh, very well to cement their spots in there. Uh, I think Musa, when he was with us previously, being in the number six in the midfield, he has very good vision when he has the ball at his feet. Uh, Joey Farrell is a very, uh, you know, physical, pretty fast defender. And then Darnell King, his partnership with Solomon Asante that has grown from last season. Uh, it was very, you know, very good. And they combined really well. And uh, Tate Schmidt in the starting lineup was a little bit of a surprise, but he's done well in the last couple of weeks when he has come on to uh, be very effective. Uh, so it was good for him to get a starting spot. Andre and Ben, you know, have always been competing and it's hard having, you know, two MLS keepers on loan to a very good team. So they're always going to be competing for that spot. And uh, Andre did very well, except the one goal conceded, but I wouldn't say it was his fault overall. Uh, I think the defense was pretty on point last night. Darnell King, um, yeah, he plays really well with Solo. And I think he is a, an unsung hero of our team. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Darnell King. Kelly, same question to you. How did the back line do last night? And I just will basically say ditto and, and leave it mostly at that. I totally <laughs> agree. Um, I guess the only thing I would comment is just, yeah, men mentioning Schmidt. We were surprised simply because we love Flood and think he's done amazing. And I don't think he did anything to, you know, not start. I think we're trying to see how Schmidt will do and, and certainly trying to add depth to our back line. And so... Schmidt getting that start is important. And as much as I love Flood, I've got nothing but praise for Schmidt's performance last night. You know, he is just so quintessential soccer player. Like he's so comfortable on the ball and off the ball. He definitely jump started the attack from the back. He participated in the attack moving forward. And I also agree with what Brandon said. I, I think he makes a point that I wanted to make, which was I think Musa and Farrell do well together. You know, they individually had great performances, but I think they really work well and communicate well together. So yeah, I thought the back line looked pretty good. Moving up to the midfield, we had Aiden Quinn, Kevin Lambert, and Arturo Rodriguez. Kevin Lambert was a monster. Um, any thoughts on the midfield, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, it's great having uh, Kevin back from uh, Jamaican international duty and uh, Aiden Quinn back from injury. You know, Lambert's always been a great guy on the ball, great player on the ball. And I think uh, a part of his game that's above others is his uh, movement and his positioning to get on the ball and be able to make the passes that he does. And uh, Aiden Quinn, I know when we first signed him at the beginning of the year, I was uh, a little worried where we'd be playing him because when we were planning, you know, play against him at when he was at OC, I felt like he was a more natural six. And so I was wondering how his partnership with Lambert would be, but he's been very comfortable at the eight, you know, connecting kind of the back line and the front three in their attack. Um, and Arturo Rodriguez brings a great amount of energy into the midfield and being able to kickstart the attack. Okay. Okay. Um, is Arturo a similar type of player to John Baccaro? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they're both uh, want to get on the ball and kind of driving at the back line and then be able to slip passes out to, you know, Solo and Santi and, you know, Rufat or David, whoever's on top. Um, so I'd say that they're uh, pretty similar. Let's move up forward. Santi Moore on the left, Solo on the right, Egbo in the middle. What are your thoughts on how they performed Um I guess we can't call them the terrifying trio anymore as uh, Rufat Dadashov wasn't part of it, but they were pretty terrifying last night, Brandon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I was interested as well to see how David would play in that position and the tactics moving forward. You know, Rufat's a very true number nine, like hold up player using his, uh, you know, big body to control the ball and players making runs off of him and, uh, so it was interesting to see how David kind of adapted that role. And um, he did, you know, similar things as well, but also had his own fly on it, making runs in behind as well and getting on the ball in the corners from like Solo and uh, Santi. And so uh, you kind of know, not, you don't always know what to expect from Solo and Santi, but they're very consistent, very high level players. 
uh, and they definitely did their job last night. Over to you, Cal. Yeah, I thought that they the defense did a really good job kind of, I don't want to say shutting Moar down, but kind of slowing him down a little bit. And I think we saw the attack pick up from all different places as a result of that. And Egbo was awesome off the ball. You know, I really, I really paid attention to him and sort of watched how he worked and, and how he might be different from Dadashov. And Brandon kind of covered that. But I also wanted to mention that I thought um, Solomon was just continues to be so amazing in his judgment. And I know we come to expect that everyone knows he's an amazing player, but he not only scores those brilliant goals, but he's very selfless and he's just been really smart about when to shoot versus when to pass and to involve the rest of the team. And it seemed like he played back a little further uh, last night and he was able to distribute as well as, you know, attack so heavily. So I thought he was just amazing. And I know we expect that, but he still deserves the props of mentioning it for sure. Okay. So guys, let's talk about the flow of the game. Um, I thought it was Rising's game definitely in the first half. It was really unfortunate that they lost their goalie. I felt bad for their goalie who had to be substituted before halftime. Actually, it was right on the 45th minute. Um, and of course, they got a they got a red card on the in the 38 minutes. So things were not going their way in the first half. But even despite those things happen, happening, I thought that it was our game last night in the first half. I thought that we were dominating. Any thoughts on that, Brandon? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I don't know the exact numbers were on possession, but I feel like our sustained possession uh, was a lot higher and um, just involving more players around the pitch instead of all the pressure being on uh, Sacramento's back line to stop our attack. Yeah, and it was wave after wave. Kelly, what do you think of the first half? Well, I agree, but I would say it felt a little slow to me. You know, there were so many fouls in this game. There were mm -hmm. so many things that stopped play, and it felt like it was hard to get our rhythm. And I felt terrible for their keeper, too. Oh, it was just like such a small stretch. I think he re-aggravated maybe an existing injury. That said, I love their usual keeper, Gomez. I mean, like, love-hate, but they're lucky to have him. And I wanted to ask Brandon, like, how hard is it to jump in? You know, it's hard to be subbed into a game anyway, but how hard is it as a keeper to be subbed in when you're probably really not expecting to play? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, pretty difficult. I know it definitely, uh, you know, when you're knowing that you're not starting, you know, maybe your uh, routine for getting ready for a game isn't the same. Um, and so then being have to thrown into game and like in the warmups, you know, the focus is all on the starter to get the reps and make sure he's comfortable and you're there to step in when he's done pretty much. Um, so, you know, a shortened warm up. And I think that something that helped Gomez in that game is, you know, having been the starter the last, you know, seven, eight games or whatever. Uh, so he's definitely comfortable with all of his players and he did a pretty good job stepping in. Yeah, he did. Um, Brandon, I've, I've got another question for you just a, a, about strategy. Do teams strategize about what they're going to do if they find themselves a man up? Uh, I'd say it's a situation that's less likely to occur. I think, um, at least, you know, for Rising, we kind of focus the other way and we do a lot of like our back four and like two midfielders versus like eight attacking players and um you know focus on our shape then but I think numbers up situation is not something that's uh practiced very often because most people just you know assume like oh you know they are gonna be a man down so there's space you know that they're missing but you know oftentimes teams just get more compact and defend deeper and um, you know, try to block the center of the field at least um, and force them around. And so uh, it's definitely something that's not practiced. I don't always think it's an advantage to be a man up because like Brandon just said, you haven't necessarily practiced for that scenario. And what you have practiced for is something that just went out the window because their normal shape and their, their game plan just went out the window. They're now each player's playing at 150%. And I think there are some people that maybe inadvertently get complacent on the team that's up. So it's kind of a shit show, pardon me, children, <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, and I've noticed this before with Phoenix Rising, like we don't always look better when we're up a man. And I, I don't mean that as a disrespect, but it's just kind of like, I've seen it before and I, I don't love it. I don't love that we don't dominate, you know, like I feel like we got away with that win a little bit last night. They were, I guess the credit more should go to Sacramento. They really played like they were a man down and they played awesome and they played fierce. And I mean, they had 13, I don't know when in the game this happened, but they had 13 interceptions. Like we were a bit sloppy to me. That's what that says. And I saw another statistic, our defense had only a 39% success rate on tackles. So all of that tells me that perhaps we were a team that felt a little complacent. Well, I think when we scored that second goal, it kicked them into that 150% of energy that you were just referring to there, Kelly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just very difficult for a team to be faced with an opponent who's playing at that 150% level. You know, when Phoenix, when the, when the ref blows that starting whistle and Phoenix come out firing, you know, they're coming out with a lot of energy. And Rick Shantz has, says, has, has said that before, you know, ref blow the whistle, here we go. And that kind of got reversed last night after we got that second goal that in that the energy, the momentum went to them and they kept it to the end of the match. And I don't think that there was a Phoenix Rising supporter that wasn't delighted to hear that final whistle blow last night. Brandon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, just like um, you and Kelly just said, like whenever a team's man down, they have to change tactically. And then also, you know, they know that they're on a crunch to be able to not, you know, worsen whatever uh, deficit they're in. Uh, so they, you know, came out with a lot of energy and uh, especially at, you know, at the start of the second half. And then even when they conceded, you know, a lot of teams may be like, you know, down two goals now and we're down a man, like, you know, it's almost over, but they still were able to keep uh, a high level of energy and even got one back. But uh, hopefully they, er, good thing they didn't get a second one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, we had three opportunities to substitute and we used all five subs in the 67th minute. Piquero came in for Rodriguez and Princedi came in for David Agbo. On the 82nd minute, Flood came in for Moore. That was a bit of a surprise. Kalistri came in for Solo. And then just at the end of the game, Adwole came in for Tate Schmidt. So um, Becaro coming in for Rodriguez and Prince Sadie coming in for David Agbo. Was that the right timing? Was Were they good substitutions, Kelly? You know, I, I'm a big fan of Becaro and I thought Rodriguez was effective, but maybe he's, you know, not necessarily uh, fit for a full game. And I thought Becaro came out there like someone who wanted to get his starting position back. You know, he played pretty effectively. And in terms of Prince Sadie, I think we've only really seen him out on the wing. You know, he adds energy. He adds speed. That was appreciated. But I think at that point, especially based on the other subs that you mentioned, our focus was defending and holding our lead. And it should be because of what we just talked about, how on fire they were. So it felt like we really moved into more of a defensive strategy at that point. As I mentioned, in the 82nd minute, we saw Ryan Flood coming in for more. Um, and, you know, he's a, he's a defensive player. Should we be expect to see him playing more of an attacking role? Or was that just we needed more defenders on the team last night? Yeah, I'd say it was probably more uh, needing more defenders, but also saving Santi's energy. You know, it was, I think, at that point, you know, the coaches were confident in the players that are out there to, you know, maintain the dub and uh, giving Santi some rest and, uh, giving Flood the minutes that, you know, he deserves, you know, being starting the, you know, see all the season before this. Um, so it was a bit of a defensive uh, tactical moment, but then also saving the energy of Santi for future games. Um, in terms of subs on their side, they, of course, there was that goalie substitution that we talked about. They had three opportunities to get their subs on just like us, but they didn't use all five subs. I thought that was Pretty interesting. Anyway, Tucker Bone came in for Carlton Belmar and Luis Felipe Fernandez came in for Andrew Wheeler Amiuno, who is a, a former Phoenix player. Um, 
you know, kudos to them. I, I think we have to respect the the de depth that they have uh, on their bench and they just have some really good players and they showed it in that second half last night. Right, Kel? Yeah, absolutely. The, the score ended up with Phoenix Rising winning 2-1. That's our second time beating them uh, away and we're delighted with that. So we'll see them two more times here in Phoenix. Any closing thoughts on that, uh, Brandon? You know, similar to what I said at the start, it was a great team effort, including the guys that uh, came on um, very good defensively and, you know, offensively still, you know, firing on all cylinders, a lot of energy from the start, uh, all the guys that started and, you know, very happy to get two wins away and hopefully we can get two wins at home against them as well. Absolutely. Kelly, any closing words? He took them right out of my mouth. I was just going to say, I am happy that the next couple of times we play them, we'll be at home so that we can do our part, obviously screaming, going crazy to ensure those W's. Awesome. Kelly, um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Brandon, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everybody. This is Niall McCarthy, and you are listening to the 10th episode of The Fan Experience a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Over the last few months, we've had fantastic guests on the show, everyone from the team and management at Phoenix Rising, supporters from all three of the active supporters groups, Los Bandidos, Union 602, and Valley Fever. We've heard from commentators from two teams that we played. Matt Cox brought us up to speed on Tampa Bay Rowdies, and Alan Underwood may have made podcasting history with us with that epic San Diego Loyal analysis. We've had local sports journalist Owen Evans and national sports journalists Alicia Rodriguez and Kevin Vogt. And we've had fans on the show sharing opinions and origin stories. In one episode, we had a McFadden, a McPherson, and a McCarthy. I was tempted to call that one the Celtic episode anyway. There have been other amazing guests, and I am eternally grateful to everyone for making this podcast what it is. But there is one person in particular that I owe a debt of gratitude to, and that is the guy you know from TV. The voice you know from years of Phoenix Rising games, and that is Devin Kerr. He chimed in at the beginning of the season to talk about issues that needed to be addressed with the Phoenix Rising lineup. Then he came on to break down a game with us. That was interesting because I was excited to hear how invincible we were after a 3-0 win against Tacoma Defiance. But Devin quickly set us straight by pointing out several areas where the team needed to do better. From chatting with Devin, I found out that he has a very interesting backstory, and I'm delighted that he agreed to share that with us, the Phoenix Rising faithful. Here he is, introducing himself to Kelly in what I think you're going to agree is a very interesting and enjoyable interview. Devin Kerr, USL Championship analyst lead analyst some would think i like to think the contract says so but who knows <laughs> i'll buy it so we're here to talk about the fan experience and for our away games that experience really is the broadcast so i'd like to just get started by talking about kind of your announcing and how you found yourself as the lead analyst for the usl what was your career path like it was interesting it was uneventful and it was also a whirlwind of a movement so let me explain that my former life uh, after i retired from playing i actually was an estate manager um, i handled you know high-end homes uh, affluent families you know political realm business world and kind of worked my way through there in 2017 an opportunity came in front of me uh, the executive producer of a studio came to me and asked me around january of 17 Actually, if I knew any young ladies that would be willing to come on as broadcasters, analysts specifically, former players. And with my background in, in the soccer world, I did. I, I said, hey, you know, I got a couple of friends that played at UNC, that played at FSU. I linked them up for NWSL stuff and national team things. From there, he said, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know why I didn't think about this, but would you be interested? I said, yeah, you know, I'm pretty happy in, in my life. I, I make a good living. Uh, I, I work my butt off, but who doesn't? He said, look, I think you should come try it. I said, no, I'm not interested. Thanks. A couple months went by. He circled back to me three or four times. And we had previously met at a bachelor party. So we had good banter together. Friend got married, continued on. Finally, in, in 
late May, early June, he says, listen, man, you may be terrible at this. Let's get that out of the way. But you've got the personality. I personally think that you have a good voice for this. You might as well come and try it out. So I said, hey, do, do, am I doing this for free? And he's like, look, literally drive down here to the studio, take an hour out of your life, sit down, watch a game, and let's see what happens. And I did it. I enjoyed it. Honestly, I really liked sitting there. Um, I've never been one to be a coach. I've always been so critical and the patience lacks on my end. But from an analyst perspective, it was fun. You know, I always talked about the game with buddies, you know, at the bar, having a pint, sitting at home on my couch with my wife. And I said, hey, you know, they want to pay me to do this. What do you think? And my wife was all for it. She said, look, go try it out. Have a little fun. I said, okay, let me try it. So I did it part time called about 25, 30 games in 2017, only USL. I did get involved with CONCACAF at the tail end of the season, but it was primarily USL. And as you gained more reps, you feel more comfortable. You know, your vocabulary and dialogue starts to branch out a little bit further. And at the end of 2017, I was told, listen, you're doing very well. You're progressing fast. You should consider doing this as a full-time job. So I sat down, wife and I weighed the pros and cons of both with estate management. It was definitely a, at that point in time, a higher financial ceiling. And, you know, I had to leave a lot of that money on the table if I left, but I would travel a lot less. I would have more of a life. I could make my hours and say, I want to do this game. I don't want to do that game. You know, I could basically the, the quality of life and living, which I think in America, people forget about a lot of times and having spent so much time in Europe doing what I loved, I said, this is a great option for me. So I did, you know, I kind of like ripping a bandaid off, quit my job, started as the analyst for USL championship in the spring of 2018. And from there, I've, you know, I've really never looked back. Wow. That's fascinating. So was the learning curve more like what to say and when to talk, or was it more having to catch yourself up on all the players, the league, you know, and the team? That's a fantastic question. And I would probably go with the first part of it because in my mind, at least this, this is the process for me. Everybody's journey is different, right? But for me, Kelly, it was, when do I speak? When do I not speak? When do I talk more than I should? And to be fair, I think every broadcaster still struggles with that every time they get on the air. Now, you definitely fine tune it for sure. But when I started games, I mean, I still, <laughs> I used to listen to myself driving home from matches every single time I got done. I mean, you talk about the Phoenix Road Feeds. Being on the East Coast and in a remote studio, you know, we're going off air at 12.30, 12.45 in the morning. I have about a 45-minute drive back north to my home from the studio. I'd throw the game on, and I'd skip through points where I thought there were good things I could listen to. I'd put it on surround sound in my car, and I would just rip myself to shreds because vocal inflection, tempo, energy is a huge one that, you know, I really focus on and, and finding a way to combine all that. But at the same point in time, I have to carry a conversation with the person next to me. I've got headphones on with the producer talking through my ear saying, keep an eye on this. This is coming at you guys. Here come the graphics. Oh, this person just got subbed on. Here's a card. Here's the goal, blah, blah, blah. And also the fact that, you know, for, for most of the USL games, we're off site and you're watching from monitors. That's not an easy thing to do. So really trying to navigate the waters of talk now, don't talk now, slow things down. That's a very difficult process. And to be honest, most people, outside of working on it in the broadcast industry, they struggled with it on a daily basis, myself included. I, you'll notice here, my tempo is going to be much faster than when I talk on air. I talk very, very fast. I know what I'm saying. I like that. And so I have to slow down. You know, I have to think the thought as they say in broadcasting, where you give people a glimpse of what it's like behind the curtain, what it's like to be a player while also depicting the movements on the field. Because if you don't slow down and you talk too fast, they can't follow both. And to be honest, as a broadcaster, you usually slip up on yourself and then you stumble and you're not clean and then you don't get more jobs. <laughs> you're touching on everything I'm curious about. So thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to balance that energy, which is required, but then you're also forcing yourself to slow down so people can, you know, really pace with what you're saying. So how do you maintain the energy throughout the broadcast? I mean, are all games that exciting to you or are you putting on a bit of a show? Oh, no, I sleep through half of them. <laughs> no, and, and, and I'm just kidding. I, you know, that's not a knock on USL. That's, I, there are a lot of games, unless I'm, actually, that's not true. I was going to say, unless I'm watching, you know, UEFA Champions League or World Cup, 
I, I get bored through those as well. The game is a story, okay? And it's got a beginning, middle, and end. And much like a book, there are chapters that you just, your eyes go across the page and you just want to get to the next one as quickly as possible. Sometimes the content doesn't necessarily mean much. A football match is just like that, where opening 10 minutes, teams are trying to find themselves. It's exciting. There's energy in the stadium, right? And then all of a sudden, maybe it slows down. Maybe tactically, things are going side to side a bit more. Those are the pages you just want to funnel through. But the next thing you know, there's a, a burst of energy and both teams are starting to go back and forth. The game opens up. Now we're hitting, you know, chapter three, four, where the characters and their backgrounds are really starting to take shape on the pages. And you're you're more interested, right? At night, you don't want to put that book down before going to bed. Then you hit a halftime and it's okay. Let's regain our bearings. What went on? And so I think the story itself is is sometimes difficult for broadcasters to maintain that energy because it can be boring, right? It can be slow, but your job is to keep people engaged. You'll notice if you ever watch shows, when a, when a game, no matter the sport, to be fair, but the, each sport dictates the tempo of everything. When a game slows down, you will hear more stories. That's us trying to keep you engaged. You know, a lot of times it can happen teams phoenix rising fans know what this is like they're up three four five nil there's 10 minutes to go the game's over get it out of the way you know we've seen them close out so many times before but there's still stories to be told that can be guys who are being subbed on it can be the winning streak the amount of goals that they've scored the fact that they're in the hunt for the number one overall seed the fact that the team that they're playing has kept a shutout for five games running and all of a sudden they've been battered and so you really have to do find a way to dig deep into the well the energy that comes a couple of different ways. Um, I actually find, and, and people are going to think I'm a dork, but to me, calling a match is, is similar to playing in one because it engages me in a manner where the prep ahead of time is just like practice and training. I actually, I stagger my meals just like before a game because I would eat hour and a half before a match. That way I had just enough food to get me through a game. Even if we went into extra time for any reason, you know, maybe I'll pop something at halftime. I do the same thing in a broadcast. I want to have a calm stomach when I walk into a broadcast. I'll eat two, two and a half, sometimes three hours ahead of time. As the match goes on, I just drink water. The funny part is, is I drink gallons of water throughout the day. So I need to slow down during a match because I can't really use the restroom. There's not much time, but I'll have a granola bar every now and then. And if you get into a situation where you're calling multiple games a day, that's where it can really get interesting because that energy for one match you walk out of the game and you feel spent, but now you got to turn around and do it again, right? And you got to do it sometimes with half an hour, an hour, only an hour and a half window where you immediately have to get back on air. And the people that are tuning in, it's not that they can't know that you just did a game. Plenty of people know that I'll call two, three games in a day, but you have to give them your undivided attention and provide the same opportunity from the previous viewers just two hours prior. Absolutely. You have to be on, you have to be in the zone. I can see that correlation with playing, but how does it differ? Well, how do you remove yourself from the athlete and the player that you are? Like, I can just imagine from my own watching of the yep. game, you want to get in yeah. there, you know, you're like, oh, I'd be doing it this way. So was that a difficult thing for you to kind of remove yourself from the player who wants to get on the field and sort of take a different view of the game? Fantastic question. So it, it definitely did. As a player, you're given, from a tactical standpoint, it's all going to depend on your upbringing and your coaches. So I'll, I'll give you the relation that I had in Germany where my coach was hard-nosed, very stringent. You know, you you walk this fine line, one foot in front of the other. And when I got onto the broadcast, you have to take your mind and expand it even further because just because you did something one way doesn't mean it's wrong if someone does something else a different way, right? And so you have to understand that you always have to keep open-minded. And I think one of my biggest issues was I was almost too negative off the bat where I would go, this is bad. This is wrong. They can't do that. Sometimes a game plan doesn't necessarily play out. That doesn't mean the game plan is wrong, right? It could be Maybe the direction from the sideline is changing and the guys are having trouble adjusting to it. Maybe the game plan in general just hasn't taken shape because the tempo of the game hasn't dictated that. So you can't jump on guys' backs right away. And that was my issue is I'd go do this, right? You nailed it. Like you guys are doing it wrong. Got to play this quicker. Got to do that faster. Like as the game goes on, you can start to use those types of words and phrases where you can be nitpicky for sure, but you need to slow it down at the beginning and really watch 
one of my pet peeves, if I haven't worked with someone before or in a while, is when a play-by-play announcer says five, 10 minutes into a game, well, what do you think so far? It drives me insane because the opening five, 10 minutes means nothing. You've been traveling. You just ate. You're in a new stadium. You've got new players on the field. You're in a new, you know, whatever it may be. There's so much energy, just like an announcer or a person walking into a new restaurant or an announcer walking into a new booth. It's all brand new. You're trying to adjust. So the the storyline of the game really doesn't present itself until you get about 30, 40 minutes into a match. You hit halftime and then all of a sudden the reset button comes. So, you know, you have to find out to make sure, stay as positive as possible. I had to remove my own individual playing background. And you want to use that experience to talk about what it could look like or should look like, but you don't necessarily want to fault everybody, you know, early on in the game. And I want to, I do want to transition to talking a little bit about your time in Germany, but just kind of wrapping up some of the announcing. So how, how do you do your research? You mentioned that's, you know, game prep for you. Um, what does that entail? How long does that take? I mean, it, it seems like it's got to be really intensive. So this is where my answer is going to differ from a lot of different people. Um, understand this, that I played professionally and I played for a short time. I had a short career because of injuries and, you know, I had to shut my body down. That was hard, but I, the opportunities I was able to get provided me the experience to be where I'm at now. That being said, I'm not going to continue to progress in the broadcasting industry unless I put in more work than the next person next to me, because I'm not a household name, right? I came up through the Olympic development program, which is a feeder system for the United States youth national team. My rep for the youth national team level, you know, U15s. And I went to camp. I didn't even play for the, the team. You know, it's, you get an opportunity to train with everybody. You don't make an appearance. It doesn't matter. I played in fourth division in Germany. You know, it's, People don't know the team, you know, Alton and Alton 93. Like most people have never even heard of that club because it's a small little club who in Germany has such a storied tradition, but to Americans, that doesn't mean anything. You know, guys like Taylor Twelman, Stu Holden, that's the benchmark in the United States because national team players, pro backgrounds, both here and abroad, that's what everybody usually looks for. So to prep and, uncom- you know, circle all this together and really encompass it, I go deeper. I watch pretty much every single match that the team has played. I will have when my boards are built, um, they're built a little bit different than most analysts because of the influence that I've had on my career from producers and from play by play people. You know, I tend to have really deep bios on guys where I read those articles and I know that, look, they were really, you know, after college, they were ready to give up the game when they were 23 years old and and went to work for, you know, their dad as a, a hand on a construction site or something like that. That's usually the play by play role. But I've kind of morphed myself into this hybrid where I've got those, you know, that information. And so when things like that come up or I'm with someone that maybe doesn't know about it, that creates a conversation. The broadcast is always about conversation, keeping people engaged, fun, unique topics that people haven't heard of. And if they have, you expand upon that. So I will go deeper into someone's background for sure. If I'm calling a team that I regularly follow, I know how they play like Phoenix, for instance, very rarely do I go multiple games in a row where I don't see Phoenix rising. Um, You know, I do all the Phoenix games. So maybe one, you know, and a special occasion that I'm not working on a Saturday night. And I better have a good reason because Phoenix fans will let me know if I'm not there. (laughs) But um, if, if for any reason I do, let's say Louisville, for instance, in the Eastern conference, and I do them on a Saturday, if I don't see them for three weeks in a row and that fourth week I'm doing them, I go back and watch every single game. In my experience, most analysts don't do that. Most play-by-play guys don't do that. Um, It's not a knock on them. It's my way of preparing. I want to be, again, given my background and my pedigree or lack thereof in certain areas for playing, I want to be the quote-unquote smartest person in the room. That doesn't necessarily mean my IQ is higher. That means that I know that in the 75th minute of, you know, the Louisville game against Pittsburgh Riverhounds, John Hackworth decided to switch to the three-back system and invert this player because of X, Y, and Z. And if you just look at the paper or you skim through the highlights, you don't see those types of things, right? And, and what that does on the back end is not, as it, not only does it make you more knowledgeable about the game that you're calling and the league that you're calling, it helps you create relationships down the line with these coaches who in turn are willing to give you more behind the scenes material, like Rick Schantz, talking to the general manager, Bobby Dooley, you know, Pete Ramage and I, you know, Rambo, great um, relationship with them. And 
if I didn't do the work and didn't know what I was talking about, they wouldn't show me the same sort of respect. So by me putting in all that work, that's me saying, guys, I understand your craft. I know what you're bringing to the field. I'm willing to work out over here, you know, throw me a little bone over there. And fortunately enough for me, it's worked out. And it's, it's noted. It's appreciated. I think you're absolutely amazing. And you're right. When you're not calling one of our games, we hate it. (laughs) So I'm glad that's mutual there. Thanks for, for all your time today. This is just really blown my mind. It's awesome. I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours in case you can't tell. So this has been amazing. I appreciate it and understand that um, anytime it's again, I wouldn't have this platform to be able to share my experience and, and moments with great fans and, and teams and listeners, if it wasn't for my love of the game and more importantly for the embracing that goes on on the other side of the camera. So thank you so much for the platform. And, and I hope that some of what I was able to share today, people are going to enjoy. All of it. Well, I'll take you up on it. We'll do it again. Love that. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, Evan. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, footy fans? This is Hugh Roberts from the Backyard Footy Podcast, and you're listening to The Fan Experience. This is Kelly McCarthy, here to bring you the standings after a phenomenal Week 10 of the USL Championship League. I want to remind you that the standings are still pretty lopsided as we look at some significant differentials in terms of games played. Across the league, you have some clubs with 12 games played and others with only 7 or 8. Somehow, Oakland Roots in the Pacific Division have only played five games. Due to some unforeseen pitch issues, they had a 13-day rest period before drawing against Austin Bull this past weekend. The Tampa Bay Rowdies still have the most points in the league with 21 after nine games, and Phoenix Rising FC still have the largest goal differential with 13 after their nine games. Finally, in terms of the big picture, I just want to toot the El Paso Locomotives horn as they are the only team in the league who have no losses to date after seven matches. Let's take a quick look at each division, starting with the Atlantic Division in the Eastern Conference. As mentioned, the Tampa Bay Rowdies are making noise at the top of the leaderboard, followed by the Pittsburgh Riverhounds, who are unbeaten in their last four matches. Charlotte Independents are in third place after a two-game week and despite their loss to Miami FC this weekend. Hartford Athletic is in fourth place with 13 points after only seven games. Also in the Eastern Conference, we have the Central Division with Birmingham Legion FC holding firm to the number one spot with 19 points after 10 games. Number two is Louisville City FC and number three is FC Tulsa. Indy 11 are fourth in the table. I really wish I had something to say about any of those teams, but nothing jumps off the page at me. Please DM or tweet at us after watching your team play and share the exciting happenings that we might miss just checking scores, tables, and headlines. I know there are amazing things happening in these games, and I'd love to include them in my weekly standing. That's at FanExperienceFC on Twitter. Let's move to the Western Conference and take a look at the Mountain Division. Rio Grande Valley FC are still at the top of the division with 17 points after 10 games, but they haven't won a game in their last three matches. They lost to FC Tulsa this past weekend in an interconference matchup. Phoenix Rising fans, remember we will also play RGV in interconference play on July 31st. The RGV Toros are trailed by the Locomotives, who are full steam ahead with no losses and three games in hand. The Colorado Switchbacks are bobbing and weaving their way up the standings with 14 points and a fantastic run of form, having suffered no losses in their last five games. New Mexico United are fourth in the Mountain Division. Finally, let's take a look at the Pacific Division, where Phoenix Rising are soaring above the competition. As stated at the top of the segment, Phoenix has 19 points after nine matches, including three points picked up on the road against Sacramento this weekend. Orange County are second in the Pacific table after a draw on Wednesday against LA Galaxy 2. San Diego Loyal are in third place with 14 points after 10 games, and we must begrudgingly note they have no losses in their last six matches. LA Galaxy 2 Los Dos have dropped to fourth place after a pretty poor run of form in the month of June. 
Phoenix Rising will be matching up against Los Dos this weekend, week 11, at home at Wild Horse Pass Stadium. Stick around for Niles' game preview. Based on their recent performance, I'm feeling pretty good, but I recently heard Devin Kerr and Mike Watts comment that of all the teams in the Pacific Division, Los Dos is the one team who could potentially steal the number one seat from Phoenix Rising. I was stunned. Based on their record, it's tempting to think we'll beat them handily this weekend, but you'd also think we'd easily beat a team who's down by two with 10 men on the field, and that wasn't exactly a walk in the park. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for the rest of the show and remember to subscribe to the Fan Experience FC podcast and never miss an episode. My name's Alex. I am a member of Los Bandidos Football Firm and you're listening to the Fan Experience. Before we wrap it up, Phoenix Rising family, let's take a look at our next game. As you know, it's a home game, and it's going to be on Saturday, July 3rd at 7.30pm. We're taking on LA Galaxy 2, also known as G2, also known as Los Dos, take your pick. This will be the first time that Phoenix and Los Dos meet this season. We played them three times last season, and we beat them 4-0, 4-1, 4-0. Interestingly, in that season, only two teams from our group made it to the playoffs and that was Phoenix and Los Dos. Okay, so how are they doing this season? Well, let's compare the two teams. Phoenix Rising have played nine games. We've won six, one draw, two losses. They've played 11 games, won three, three draws and five losses. Our win rate is right up there at 66.7%. Their win rate is the is a dismal 27.3%. Having said that, there are two things to note. Number one, their lead goal scorer is Preston Judd. He leads the Western Conference with more goals scored than Santi Moore. Hmm. Remarkably, the two teams lead the USL in goals scored overall. Los Dos have 20 goals so far this season, and only one team in the entire league have more than that. Can you guess who? Of course you can. Phoenix Rising are the goal-scoring leaders with 22 goals scored, and treat yourself to a night out at Phoenix Rising Soccer Complex at Wild Horse Pass, and you'll see another four goals from the darlings of the West, Phoenix Rising. That's my prediction, guys. 4-0. Go Rising! our show for this week guys thank you so much to our guests kelly mccarthy brandon keniston and devin kerr sam healy thank you for the music that's it guys go rising